Welcome to the At The Coalface podcast with your host, Jason Greenwood. This podcast is all about what it's really like in the trenches of digital and e-commerce. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the pod. I've got an exciting episode in store for you today. But let me welcome our guest for the day, Eyal Rosenthal from Return Go. Welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. And look, it, we were just talking off air just before we kicked off how big the Israeli tech scene is. You're based in Tel Aviv, and we've had a couple of other very fast-growing, both when we think about fintech, when we think about e-commerce tech, when we think uh, about really consumer-facing technology. Before I started featuring so many Israeli tech companies on the podcast, I wouldn't have appreciated just how much of a hotbed of innovation in our industry Israel truly is, but it just seems like the hits keep coming from Israel. It's amazing. Yes, there there is something in the water that that is true. It's a great ecosystem, and it's a great ecosystem that grew naturally where there were companies that 10, 15 years ago started and grew and helped, whether it be Wix or Yotpo or those types of industries that grew to become much more prevalent in the e-commerce space that helped their employees start up new new companies and it's just been a cycle so it's uh, we're based in tel aviv and it's really across the street from us we have global e down the road we have looks it's a very pleasant surprise that when i got into an area that was on the border of e-commerce and logistics i didn't actually know how heavily involved everything was here because you know israel israel is a startup nation but at the same time people always hear in the news about at least locally about cybersecurity or fintech and it seems that there has been just a groundswell of e-commerce activity that has grown up and given rise to a really good industry. And it sounds like you you were also mentioning that, I guess, despite the fact that Israel, like many countries, is hyper competitive in that startup space, that particularly within the e-commerce ecosystem, there is probably a greater sense of collaboration than competition. And you were mentioning that coincidence with Rise and Yair over at Rise. Uh, and then the, the fact that the guys over at Balance, look, it, it feels very tight knit and it feels like you guys really do support each other. Despite the competitive nature of our industry, it seems like there is a strong sense of support across the ecosystem in Israel. Oh, definitely. It's Israel is a small country. It doesn't make sense for any of us to look at the local market as our market. So from day one, we're internationally focused. And if being day one internationally focused, the market is so broad that even if something is doing something adjacent to you, then they're not actually probably going to be competing. So you could actually work together to see how you help each other. I forgot about this when we were speaking earlier, but by happenstance, tomorrow morning, I'm at a founders event of several e-commerce co-founders where it's six companies. Everybody's in that same raised a seed round or series A more or less similar type of growth trajectory and run rate and simply talking to each other and seeing, okay, how can we help each other? What are the challenges that we're all running into? And it's a very supportive community where, where had we grown up in a different, in a different country, it might've been, okay, how do we worry about the guy next to us? Not how do we help the guy next to us? That is actually such a, just even that mindset really, I think speaks to 
the power of collaboration over competition. I'm working with a, I'm consulting with a stealth software startup in Israel, literally as we speak, and they already had a very strong working relationship with Balance. And so it's such an interesting thing because some of the, I guess some of the technology and the knowledge and the industry connections that Balance already have because of their breadth of what they do and how many markets they've been successful in penetrating combined with all of the markets that are clambering for what they deliver, they have been able to provide ins into the industry to this stealth startup that on their own, this stealth startup would have really struggled with. And I think that, you know, and it, but it's ultimately going to be beneficial for balance as well, because there will be business that comes their way as a result of that co collaboration. So it is great to see. And we do see this in other parts of the world particularly in the e-commerce ecosystem, those of us that have been doing this for a very long time, we like to think of ourselves as, you know, this industry is huge and it's growing really fast. But when we're objective about it, we're still a very tiny percentage of overall retail. And so we are a, a tiny ecosystem when you look at it objectively versus the broader umbrella of IT or other verticals, we're, we're still relatively small. So there really isn't as much room to compete. Sure, like you say, there are competing technologies out there. But most of the players in the e-commerce ecosystem approach things slightly differently. So there's very few direct head-to-head -head competitors as a result. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also see, though, even where in return goes small part of that ecosystem world, where there are other companies doing similar things, competition doesn't actually need to be on the existing customer base. There is so much room for growth for everybody that you actually see we run into competitors, but we don't run into them often. And the reason being is because of that growth, it gives opportunities for everyone. Now, that's not to say that there's going to be consolidation and you actually do see consolidation and other aspects of an industry maturing, but it's good that it actually gives the, uh, basically the openness of ideas and new entrants, the ability to grow. And if you do have a good idea and if you do have a way to approach the market, that's different to find your niche. That's such a, it's such a good place to start from. And if we look back before we get into the specifics of the technology that you're building and the service you're providing to the industry, if we look back across your career, you've had a long and illustrious career and it, it strikes me as a somewhat similar bl blend to some of the other tech founders I've had on the podcast cast in that you've got this business background, this business understanding, work for PricewaterhouseCoopers, you have been in sales, you've been in biz dev, you understand entrepreneurship, you understand finance, you understand the underpinning of building a successful business from a commercial perspective, but yet you've also got this tech background as well. You've got this tech knowledge, you've got this tech capability and director of project management, you've co-founder of mini app mobile solutions or an app site. So you have this almost, well, seemingly, and maybe you can speak to this seemingly perfect blend between commercial nows, technical understanding. And it feels if you're going to effectively start a tech startup and you're going to understand how to grow that startup into a successful commercial business, you have to understand those two things. Yes, I think it's critical to understand both the technology and the business aspects and the business motivations for for customers, at least on my side, the customers, not the end customers, when looking about retail, why they want to purchase and how to move them through processes in terms of the sales processes and what's important for them also from a technology perspective. But I think, and this is actually one of the key differentiators, at least going maybe half a step back towards the Israeli market, is that I am incredibly fortunate with the co-founders that I have in that 
while I have technology knowledge and technology experience, but much more on the business side, I have my CTO who is an absolute genius into how to properly build systems. And he cut his teeth at Cisco in terms of, okay, how should something be built correctly? Not how to, not necessarily how to build something complex because Cisco can build everything that you can imagine complex, but how to also try to attack it and build it correctly. And my, my co-founder and CEO is Israelis get things done. I'm trying to not use profanity. So they get things done <laughs> very well. And he is, has that within that population, there is maybe that five or 10% that are extraordinarily well at getting things done. And his ability to get things done drives everybody around him to get more done as well. And so it's that real being able to find those different people. So where I complete the team from the business side and have that technology knowledge and have a CTO that is phenomenal on the technology side and has at least also did a stint in entrepreneurship and has that business acumen and seeing of where he has gaps were and having a CTO who just gets things done helped us really build a really strong team. Nothing gets done, nothing gets built by one person. It's always a team around. And so that's, uh, that, that's something that's always critical to, to remember because I've been fortunate to have succeeded in previous uh, activities, but it's also without a doubt, a team is much stronger than the individual. Absolutely. The, the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, I think is the saying, yep. <laughs> and that's definitely true when you're building teams, no question about that. Now, if we speak to what Return Go is, and that's Return Go, R-E-T-U-R-N-G-O dot A-I is your website. And you guys really have a focus on helping e-commerce returns be less painful for e-commerce retailers by encouraging them to have a ability to turn this into a credit instead of a straight up refund. That's really your focus. It's how can we, we all know that returns are massively painful to e-commerce businesses and they can destroy profitability very quickly, particularly in, in verticals like fashion, et cetera, where you might be operating on pretty razor thin margins to begin with. And so really you guys help to drive a return experience that allows that money to stay in the business. That's the goal. Right. The goal, our North Star is making merchants more profitable. Now, along the way, we also give the customers a really good experience, but it is a very, very heavy focus on does an action that we take help make a merchant more profitable? Part of that is on the customer experience side and encouraging customers to take store credit or to do an exchange instead of a refund because refunds really do destroy value. And by the way, anybody who tells you that returns are good for businesses because they're an opportunity to create a good impression is is trying to sell something because if you can give a uh, merchant the opportunity to have less returns, all else equal, they will take less returns, all else equal. So it is that focus to try to save the sale when the return does happen. And that's now we're actually also working on several features to reduce returns without harming any, with keeping all, all else equal the same. And then the other side of it is also on the logistics side, because one of our customers told me this better than I could have think of reverse logistics as death by a thousand cuts. And we try to remove or to band-aid those cuts one at a time. So it's not just on the saving the sale. It is also on improving merchant profitability by improving the reverse logistics, whether it be reducing customer support calls, reducing inefficiencies in terms of manual, menial manual activity that somebody has to do, such as double work of writing something in the return management system, and then also doing it also in the ERP, but systems should actually talk together so that when you document it in one, the other one should know about it. So a lot of 
those activities, I would say probably most of our features end up coming from there just because there's so many issues there as well to help the merchants become more profitable. And our end goal is to let the machines do many of that thinking so that a merchant doesn't need to think, okay, what are the policies that I should have in place to have the most profitable business? But what are the things that cause customers to behave differently? And how do I then impact customer behavior to be a more profitable business? How do I change my operations to become more profitable? That's where we're taking things right now. And it feels like you guys also focus on some of the platform gaps that would do two things they would create more friction for the customer in terms of the return experience, but they would also create more workload and administration costs to the brand to help manage those returns. So it feels like you're attacking this from two angles and perhaps uh, I've never used Return Go before, so I'm relying on what I understand about the technology and the way that it works. Maybe you can help validate this for me. If we compare you to something like Loop Returns or Happy Returns or some of the other returns platforms that are out there that maybe the audience has heard of, it feels like you guys are taking that returns experience and taking it one step further and saying, okay, for example, you integrate with Shopify, but you know that Shopify out of the box doesn't offer a store credit engine. It's just not, it's just not native to the platform. And that's why some people will install a Rise AI or something like that to create these store credit models or these loyalty models that include a store credit ledger. But it feels like you guys have built some of this functionality into your core platform so that you say, okay, cool. Shopify doesn't have an RMA platform. It doesn't have an RMA functionality built in. It doesn't have a store credit functionality built in. We need these two things to be able to create a rich, engaging return experience that minimizes the loss for the brand in the process. And it feels like you're thinking about this from a really very high level strategic level, not just a customer experience level. Correct. I think the key word that you said very early on was also friction. We want the experience from both the merchant and the customer side to feel like you're skidding on ice, not that you're skidding on sand. That comes from leaving it also to a business decision of if you're a Rise customer so that you can integrate Rise into Return Go, put in your credentials and offer that as store credit. But if you're one of the other 98% of merchants that don't use Rise or don't use one of those competing solutions, then to use what we can natively create for you similarly in Shopify to have that benefit. And that comes from the example of store credit. It comes from the example of other integrations and we're Shopify first, but we are not going to be Shopify only. And in fact, you speak to that on your website. You're speaking specifically of going after the enterprise marketplace space, meaning that Presumably, you'll have integrations, I'm guessing, and again, you can validate this for me whether I'm right or wrong. I'm guessing you'll have major integrations with the common marketplace platforms, the Amazons, the Ebays, the Catches, etc. Your merchants can then, if they need to manage a return for a marketplace sale, that is seamlessly integrated into your platform as well. So if they have a D2C play and they have a marketplace play, they can manage holistically all of their returns through one central portal. Exactly. And a lot of that actually is working with OMSs that are less native to Shopify, but they have one connection to Shopify, one connector to Amazon, another one to Costco and to a variety of other areas where they sell. And some of it might also be connected into their, to their brick and mortar location if they have a brick and mortar. So really to be able to uh, provide that one source where they manage the returns all through those activities. And if it is, and uh, 
in, in fairness to full disclosure, integrating it to some of those marketplaces is very challenging. Whereas the, the merchants and these tend to be the larger merchants that are using a very solid OMS system, it is much easier to integrate into an OMS system. So it's most likely going to come from that direction. But yes, it is also providing those services as well. And you guys speak specifically about your unique AI-driven return score technology helping to minimize the overall net cost to the business to manage a return. And you talk about this kind of really clear three-step process that a customer will go through where you, at critical waypoints, you inject your unique technology into the process, not in a friction-added way, but in a friction-reducing way. So oftentimes technology, for the sake of technology, can introduce friction, even even unknowingly introduce friction. But it feels like you guys are very much focused on allowing the technology to, to fade into the background, to be very transparent to the consumer, where you do provide that really rich re returns portal or slash exchange portal. And then at there, from that point, once you know the product that the customer wants to return and perhaps the reason why, according to them, then at, there, at that point, you can jump in with your technology. You will recommend alternatives to the customer as opposed to a straight up return, such, for example, exchanging the items, providing a store credit for eligible products. And ultimately, the whole goal behind this feels like minimizing the loss associated with returns for the merchant. Correct. And that's really where it goes to is minimizing that loss. And a lot of it had to do with how Return Go came to be, where the impetus for the idea actually started with my co-founder who looked at his credit card bills and was not sure what all these charges back and forth were and thought that his wife was committing fraud. And then he started asking, he was like, what is this, like all these charges back and forth? And she said, well, I was bought the following items return. She turns out did e-commerce bracketing and was just returning a lot of the items that she would buy four items in return, two or three. And he just thought that it made no sense to incur such uh, such strong expenditures. And if you can identify the type of customers that are going to behave in that in such a fashion, you can provide to them a unique offer. And we were talking about the Israeli ecosystem. So Israel does have both Forder and Riskified here that what they've been able to do is do it from a fraud prevention side of saying, okay, what do communities of individuals look like? And so we've actually built the ability to look at what do communities of shoppers look like, not from the fraud side, but from, okay, how can we entice these customers to change their behavior? And this is where it really is. If you want to return a particular item that cost you $30, but the actual cost of goods sold for it was only six. In that situation, what store credit level would we actually want to offer you that it is then the best outcome for the merchant? Because it could be that in that situation where the merchant, because of the profit margin, wants to keep that sale as much as they can and are willing to give you 30, 40, maybe even 50% extra in store credit. Or in, because of other activities that we've recognized, we actually don't want to do that. We only want to offer you a refund and say, okay, this is a customer that if we keep him as a repeat customer, he's not going to have the same LTV as somebody else. So that's part of that equation of merchant profitability that, that, that we put into play. Having said that, once we got into the market and started talking to merchants, started growing with merchants, a lot of the pain points are much, much lower down in terms of what I'd call the Manslow's hierarchies of needs and in, in, for returns, where it's first, give me a really strong return portal that I'm able to adequately capture the information and send the customer through, through a strong journey. 
then give me the right integrations, and then I'll be more adventuresome and start to offer different activities that you can recommend. We started with one idea with, and it turns out the overall idea was right, but we needed to go one le like several le low levels below to, to really understand the merchant pain points because many merchants are less adventuresome. They are more cautious. And it feels very much like one of the game-changing concepts behind what you guys are building is this concept of optionality, both for the merchant and for the customer, and bringing a level of intelligence to that decision-making process that they might not otherwise have. And I'm looking at the example you show on your website when someone is looking at re returning something through the returns portal, they lodge the request, you know, the RMA request, but then what they see in front of them is three alternatives here. One is keep the item, and you really clearly demonstrate to the customer the value of each option. So keep the item 20 bucks, ship it back later, $39. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more because I don't understand how that works. And then full refund, $25. So what we're doing is we're offering, off, as opposed to just purely saying, ship it back to us, return to base. And once we receive it back, if it's in resellable condition or whatever, or if it was damaged in transit to you, then you know we'll inspect it. We'll put it into quarantine in our warehouse. Once we get to it, then we'll process the, the refund or the credit if we feel that you deserve it, essentially, if you feel it, if they feel it's warranted. And so there's a whole lot of time lost in that process for the customer before they can respend that money with you as a brand. But also it creates stress and frustration on the part of the customer because they know that nothing is actually going to happen until that item gets all the way back goes through the whole returns and inspection process. And it, this can take literally weeks. In my experience, this can sometimes take weeks for the entire process end to happen. And it feels like what you guys are doing is you're saying, okay, for low-risk customers, we know their order history because we're tapping into the e-commerce platform. We're tapping into the order management system. We're tapping into whatever system, maybe even the ERP, to where we know the behavior of these customers. If we, if maybe you even tap into Gorgeous, maybe you could talk to me about that as well. So yeah. wherever it is that we're tracking customer behavior we need to know what that is so that we incentivize the right behavior instead of incentivizing the wrong behavior if you've got someone that brackets regularly and 95 percent of the time on when they order with you they're going to be returning something from that order you want to try to discourage returns as much as possible with that type of customer you don't want to incentivize it so it feels like you guys are trying to take all of the data that you have access to and say okay what are the options we should be recommending to the merchant and what are the options we should be recommending to the customer Correct. That's the heart of our return recommendation engine. Now, in, in fairness of full disclosure, most of our merchants are not yet at the point in their technology comfort, where they're comfortable from a technology perspective of letting the machine run its course. We have probably, I'd say about two to 3% of our merchants. And today we have about 2,500 merchants. So it's not, so it's more than a handful that do, but most are still in that, in that more cautious stage. What we actually see in the ones that are more adventuresome is a lot of surprises. People, first of all, you can look at an individual, you can look at a store, but you can look at the product category and basically the heuristics of each one of those that is readily available basically lets you put guardrails into, okay, how do I make a business decision that isn't going to negatively impact the merchant? And once you're able to be confident that you're not negatively impacting the merchant, then you can say, okay, let me now test offering this individual 110% and this other individual 125%, another individual 90% under similar type of circumstances. And you actually get very surprising results. One, one of the strangest ones was that if you ask somebody to donate an item 
and you actually provide them information of where they could donate it to and provide them a less in-store credit than they would get in a refund. It is shocking how well that works relative to even giving them more than store credit than they paid for the item. I think part of it is psychological and that people then see it as they're going to be donating to this local organization instead of going to the post office and they don't want to go to the post office. But for some reason, it, it works. And so there's a lot of unexpected things when you offer to offer a variety of options to individuals and you see how they behave. But it is important to have those guardrails because, as you were mentioning, if somebody is a habitual abuser this or a habitual returner, you do not want that individual to have the ability to keep the item or to ship it back later. That's an individual that the policy that we would recommend to the merchant to do from the get-go would be that if somebody does more than three or four returns a year to warn them that they could be restocking fees involved or additional charges associated based off of their behavior. And then to, and then to also enforce that, those policies. Now for the 99% of users who are basically in the green light area, they're not even going to notice that. Uh, they're not even going to be aware that there is such a thing, but that very small percent that order 10 and return eight and cause a phenomenal loss to the merchant there you are actually able to prevent many of that from occurring. Now, do you think that the reason why there is still this reticence by the vast majority of your merchants to turn this wholesale over to AI to create the best ultimate blend of return options for each individual customer and then to learn over time and enhance that over time, do you think that's partly because they realize that their own data set or their own data sources is maybe not as good as it needs to be for the AI and the machine learning to be able to craft really thoughtful return options down to the customer level. Because obviously there's many businesses that maybe they don't have the type of data in their CRM or their help desk system or whatever system it is that they're currently using to manage returns or to track returns in, that system itself may either be non-existent, it may be 100% manual or the data may be polluted in some way because they don't accurately bucketize it in a way that's easily digestible by your system. So is it more that they have less faith in their own technology stack or their own data set, or is it that they just simply don't trust a third party, even if it's a technology platform, to make these kinds of commercial decisions on their behalf? I think it's actually the latter more than the former. And the reason for that is... Our biggest competition is email. Yes. So you had mentioned several of our competitors earlier. They're great companies. First of all, that have done one of them has done a phenomenal job in terms of user experience. Another one in bringing innovation on logistics aspects to it. So, uh, so th this is actually a perfect example where competition is great. But 97, 98% of Shopify merchants don't have a return management solution in place, don't offer a returns portal, and might offer a Zendesk form or a Gorgeous form or a type form in terms of managing their returns. So our biggest competition is email. And when your biggest competition is email, the buyers are more hesitant. There is a learning curve there. I think in two, three years, we will see from our customer base that percentage of, of merchants using the return recommendation engine growing significantly, but they need that to have that bind. They need to be confident that the party that they're working with is a strong technology player. I think that's probably the key part to it. Our first customer who basically went all in on being adventuresome in terms of what they offer their customers was 
I guess not accidentally, a very large Israeli-run e-commerce store that's in the shapewear space. And so when they were starting out, they said, we like technology. This seems like an interesting play in terms of what we can offer somebody different in terms so that we can keep as much money as we can. It's worked out phenomenally well. This is Under Outfit, amazing brand, amazingly well-managed. And they basically have given us the green light to play a lot with, or to, to, with not just with their policies, but to basically let the machine decide many of their policies. And we've seen that they been able to have rates that are sometimes in the 35 to 45% range, really strong use of store credit. And it's, it's something that is not common for their particular or as common in their particular segment, but many of the things we couldn't have predicted when we first did it. If you were to ask me, how do you encourage somebody to take store credit as opposed to a refund? My answer would be offer them more store credit. Turns out that's not actually always correct. It's try to offer that particular individual something that's more unique to them, where if you think about it actually from the brick and mortar level or before technology, if you were to call customer support and say, hey, I have a problem with this item that I want to return, if you have a good agent on the other line, they can figure out, okay, this is the problem with the item. This is how I can encourage them to do something else. And Sarah, the phone operator, could actually save that sale as well because she gave thought into it and how to do it. It wasn't just a rules-based aspect to it. It was giving intelligence there. It's going to take time for merchants to have that same level of comfort that a machine can make those offers like an individual can to try to save them. It, I guess to me, it makes sense that the machine learning, particularly over time, would be able to ultimately do a much better job than a human being because the human being doesn't, they might have access to that specific customer's history but they don't have access, or at least in their mind at that one moment, they don't necessarily have knowledge of all the other returns that are happening across the entirety of the business. They don't necessarily understand the COGS element. They, nece they don't necessarily, they just don't necessarily have access to all of the data in the ability to have that and crunch those numbers in their mind all at one time, the same as a machine can. And they don't have perfect recall and perfect memory either, like a machine yep. does. And so to me, it feels like Ultimately, this will eventually become a no-brainer when brands realize, hey, our, op our customer service operators, as amazing as they are limited in their ability to understand the commercial impacts of their decisions, pan business, right? They might not understand in the moment, right there, right then, in that specific return with that specific customer, what that commercial impact of those different options might be. But when we look at the overall meta impact of those individual decisions, they can't know that by definition, whereas your system can. And so I guess if we're trying to achieve an overall commercial outcome out of our returns pan business, we need to have a system that understands all of the impacts across every aspect of the business and all of the other technological touch points that those returns will hit. So now you're sounding a lot like my co-founder. So I completely agree with you and what my co-founder and CEO would agree as well. That's how we see things, where we see things moving towards, but that is not going to happen overnight. None of these things happen overnight. It will take time. And we do see there are, it's, there's that great technology book, uh, Crossing the Chasm, and you see it. It's, there are the very, it, it, I, f I forgot that the, the, the terms, of, I don't know if it was the innovators or the very early adopters who are willing to take that risk, who are willing to jump in, but it's going to take time for other ones to bridge that gap and to leap over and to become an early majority. So it will come. It, it does require patience. And in the meantime, I'm guessing that you guys offer a bit of a hybrid model, right? Where you can say, okay, we're not going to completely let the 
AI present these options to the customer the moment that they file their RMA with you through our portal. But what we are going to do is we are going to present these recommendations to the merchant for final approval. Here's the recommendations we're making based on these factors and based on the rule set that we're starting with here, the, ba the baseline rule set. Here's our recommendation based on our knowledge of this history of returns. Let's say it's been operating in the business for six months. Obviously, it gets better over time iteratively with your brand and your products and your customers. The more data is access to, the better it's going to get just naturally over time. So do you have that hybrid model where, okay, here's the top three or top four options we recommend that you present to this customer if you're going to authorize this return, and then they can effectively rubber stamp that those options. Or they can say, okay, you're telling me I should offer them these four options. I think we should only offer them these three options. Okay, here you go. This is what we're going to present back to them through the returns portal and our notifications that are going to be sent to them. So I'm guessing that there is that stepping stone process whereby your AI doesn't just get chucked out the window in favor of a human making the decision, but there's a collaboration between human decision-making and informed human decision-making. Yes, and this is where reality gets complicated. So when, and what I mean by that is when we first created the solution, we went for the all AI with some guardrails or all rules. And with some, with, you could also have rules within the AI, but basically like that were th those were the two the two ends and right now our data team is hard at work to basically provide that functionality that you're speaking about this i think will all is also saying that it'll help it become more from that two three percent of merchants to a higher percentage of merchants is providing for to them that actionable insight so that they can see okay here's my policy right now and here's what the machine recommends that i change my policy to and what the likely outcome will be of that change. And do I want to enable such a, such a change and, and test it out and run that A-B testing? So that's actually slated to come before the end of the year because our board has demanded that it come before the end of the year. We are working on it. So right now it's more of a green light, red light in, in terms of options, but it's becoming really actionable insights for those merchants so that it isn't either you let the AI run wild or you're very rules heavy to give that middle ground but but the reality is it's, it's building, a hard thing to build yeah <laughs> building takes time it's I've, i i keep coming with more demands to our r d from basically from customers and i'm happy that our customers come with those demands i also see sometimes the look on my cto's face is i thought if we just did a b c d everything would be smooth sailing i'm like no you solve problems a b c d they're still f g h i and so forth to also solve to make the experience really phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. It's the traditional friction between sales, marketing, and product, right? There's always this hap. In most cases, it's fairly happy tension and it has to be there because you want your product development roadmap to be fully customer informed or as, as customer informed as possible. But you also don't want to be, if you've got a vision for the market and where you want to take it, sometimes people don't know what they don't know. And so therefore they don't know what they need until they see that it's available to them. So it is that happy tension between sales, marketing, and product. And I see this very routinely in the software world. And it sounds like you're dealing with that as well. And that's a good place to be. I think that product development needs to be spurred by a fully informed, closed feedback loop with customers. So I think that's a, I think that's a really healthy aspect of this here. Now, it, it sounds like you've got a pretty clear roadmap, at least in the immediate future, where the, you'd like to take this product to expose more of your merchants to this smart AI that you guys have built that you think is really game-changing for the way that merchants process. But at the moment, until that comes out, and this may change how you 
structure your pricing and how you work with customers, how you engage with customers. But as of right now, how do you guys make your money? How do you structure your pricing to where you got your SaaS platform? Obviously, you plug in as an app to Shopify and presumably other platforms. And then soon you'll be able to plug into a broader range of OMSs, WMSs, et cetera, whatever system is the kind of the core management system of returns for a brand. You'll be able to plug into that. But how do you guys make your money? So we are, in that sense, a classic SaaS business where there is a monthly subscription rate. And then within that subscription rate comes a certain usage level. And above that usage level, you have an excess usage charge. So we have most of our revenue is recurring revenue. And we do have, in addition to that, uh, usage, usage fees alongside with it. So that's, it seems to be working. It's the nice aspect of when it's recurring revenue, it becomes much more predictable. So we have been, so yeah, so, so far that's been working. And look, I think, that's a pretty well, that. <laughs> I think it's a pretty well-trodden model, right? It's a pretty common model. Hey, we've got this fixed fee because we've got fixed fees associated with infrastructure, hosting, development. So we've got these fixed yes. overheads as a business and we've got this roadmap that we want to execute on. So we have to have this kind of consistent ARR or at least MRR at the very least, so that we can pl effectively plan and roadmap out what we can do in the short, medium, and long. We also have to recognize that some merchants are going to have higher returns rates that they need to process versus others, and we don't want to unfairly penalize merchants that have a relatively low returns rate in favor of the ones that have a very high returns rate. So we have to have some usage oh, component course. built into the platform. And the funny thing is we actually tend to charge our high using our high volume merchants more than our low volume merchants, even on a per return basis. And much of that comes from our belief that on the low side of it, we're, we've been able to build something that, that it's not no touch, but it's low touch. And so we have merchants that have dozens of returns a month. And I love those merchants because they've they helped us grow and gave us phenomenal insights into how to make our product better. Our merchants that are in the hundreds and thousands of returns a month, this is where really even the sales cycle is different. It's having an AE involved and having an AE stronger, more senior AE involved on, on the larger deals. But it is also segmented based on their size and based on their needs because somebody who has 20 returns a month does not need the automations that somebody that has 2,000. Somebody that has 2,000, uh, you need to have an integration into the ERP system. You need to have an integration into the label creation side of it, irrespective of where geographically they may be located, you need to be able to take automated actions based off of a variety of triggers. Whereas if you have 20 returns a month, you can manage manually. And what you may need most is a return portal that meets your policies. So the needs are different depending on the merchant size. And we aim to be as flexible as possible. Having started in Shopify is an incredibly flexible system. And we try to be as flexible as them. And it is, it is a constant challenge. But it is also a fun challenge because merchants come to us all the time with things that we did not even know could exist. And and turns out these are things that also, they, these are scenarios that exist in the real world. And in e-commerce, you solve something for one merchant, you end up solving it for a hundred thousand. So might as well solve it. So we attack problems from that perspective. So it is a price, so it is a SaaS, a stereotypical SaaS revenue model, but it is also based off of the merchant size and their needs. Make, makes complete sense. Now you guys have a plug and play integration with Shopify as of today. Are there any other, in the immediate future, or maybe in the medium-term future, are there any other e-commerce platforms that you're looking to create that similar plug-and-play, seamless experience, plug-in experience for merchants for a, a big commerce, a Salesforce Commerce Cloud, a, a Magento, any other platforms that you're targeting in the near or medium term? 
Yes, we are targeting launching on Magento prior to the end of the year. Right now, it's looking around mid-December for Magento 2.0. And the goal is every two months thereafter to open up with an additional platform where the roadmap is right after Magento to support a Salesforce Commerce Cloud, after Salesforce Commerce Cloud to support WooCommerce, and after WooCommerce to support BigCommerce. And after that, it's a question mark because... The market share gets a lot smaller after, the, <laughs> exactly. after that. Exactly. That's yes. great. Look, you guys obviously understand the importance of plug and play capabilities for merchants because having custom integrations is painful and expensive and time-consuming for merchants to implement through their chosen partner. So look... You, it sounds like you're on the path to greatness here. And it sounds like you're listening to customers. You're listening to their pain points. You're listening to the ecosystems that they're already plugged into to try to plug into those ecosystems and draft off those ecosystems for you, both your benefit and the merchant benefit. So it sounds like you're doing all the right things that we would expect a young, aggressive, hungry SaaS company to do. And uh, I'm really impressed with what you guys are trying to build there because it's pretty unique. Some of these other returns platforms that are pretty well entrenched in the marketplace, they do what they do very well, but it, their approach is different to yours. And it sounds like your approach is going to bring an element of automation and an element of advanced decision-making for merchants that they just don't have today. They just don't have available to themselves today. It's a yes, no scenario with most of these other platforms. So look, it's exciting stuff that you guys are building and it's, it, you've got an you've got a aggressive roadmap in front of you. So it's gonna be exciting to see you guys execute on that. If somebody wanted to find out more about you guys, would you prefer that they just go to returngo.ai, read about all of the information on your website, and then if they are running Shopify currently and they want to try you out, then obviously just go to the Shopify app store and install the returngo app and start from there? Or would you prefer that they reach out to you directly via LinkedIn or something like that? How would you, how do you, how would you like people to get a hold of you guys? So if it's a merchant, I would say go to returngo.ai and read about us, contact us, talk to somebody on the team. I'll be honest, I out of our merchants, I probably still know about a thousand by first name, but it is, it's, it's hard to keep up with, with all the new ones. Yes. So, so there I do recommend not coming straight to me because then I become a bottleneck. Yes. Uh, and I'll say though, that if it is somebody from, not from the merchant side, from the potential partnership side, and we work with a tremendous number of players in, in, in the space, and we're always looking to work with more. Sometimes it's somebody helping us. Other times it's us helping somebody else. Then reach out to me in LinkedIn and I'm more than happy to help. Absolutely awesome. Now, as we come towards the end of our time together, this is the point where I get to turn the microphone over to you for you to ask me one question. Any question you like can be business related, doesn't have to be, can be absolutely any question you like. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to you. I.L. Rosenthal from Return Go. What is your question for me? We have decided to make Magento our next platform. And by the way, if there is somebody listening on the Magento platform and wants to be in that in initial users, definitely reach out to us. But what would you recommend be the next platform? Because that we are having a lot of debates about. Yeah, look, I'm probably a little bit biased in that I have a strong preference in, in my consulting business for SaaS platforms. And obviously, Adobe Commerce is not SaaS. It's, a, it's an on-prem platform. Yep. I, and Shopify is a SaaS platform. So I would have imagined, I would have thought that the natural fit for you guys would be maybe to hit all the SaaS platforms first before you get into the on-prem platforms where you've got the back end and the front end component to think about. So I would have thought maybe big commerce would be next, possibly Salesforce, Commerce Cloud, possibly VTEX, all SaaS platforms before you get into the on-prem 
platforms like Adobe, but it really does come down to market share. And I think that if you were to look at built with, and you were to look at the market share of the e-commerce platforms out there, obviously WooCommerce, which I don't consider a standalone e-commerce platform. It's effectively a plugin for WordPress, but yep. it, from an e-commerce functionality perspective, it is the most deployed e-commerce platform in the world. So if you were looking at a pure market share perspective, then obviously WooCommerce would have to be right near the top of your list. But yeah, from a technical perspective, I would have thought that integrating with the SaaS platforms that already have an app marketplace and an app module model would be the easiest path or the lowest friction path for you guys to build against. So it really just comes down to, do we want want to build what we think we can deliver quickly to the market or do we want to build based on market share which approach do we want to take i would tend to lean particularly because you guys are relatively young still i would tend to lean at least initially towards the market share model because it's you want to be able to impact the broadest range of merchants possible as quickly as possible because you guys have a very fair billing model you're not what i would call this high super high end enterprise cost. You're not going to cost the merchant thousands of dollars a month like they're paying perhaps for their e-commerce platform. And so it feels like you're probably pretty accessible even to the smaller players. And I would have said, because you're accessible to the smaller players, that's where WooCommerce really specializes is in the smaller merchants. And so that feels like perhaps you said it sounded like WooCommerce was maybe more towards the end of your roadmap as opposed to closer to the beginning. So that may be something you want to consider just in terms of market share. Okay. That's a Sound advice. Listen, mate, it's been absolutely fabulous speaking with you. I appreciate your time. Sounds like Return Go is really looking to shake up the market with some amazing technology that doesn't really exist in the world today outside of you guys. And certainly your approach is quite different. So I wish you absolutely every success. And I look forward to hopefully having, a, having you on the pod next 6, 12, 18 months and seeing where you're at with Return Go. Thank you. And I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to another one. Are you a merchant or software vendor that is focused on e-commerce or omnichannel? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to see how we can help you scale your business.